I want to focus your attention this morning on Psalm 51. Psalm 51, probably my favorite psalm of all 150 psalms, Psalm 51. In fact, uh, for years, I would read this psalm through, I would pray this psalm through every Sunday morning before I would preach. Um, It was my way of getting myself right with God before I would stand up and, and preach Um, each and every Sunday. This is that famous psalm of David's, uh, a prayer of David's, a confessional prayer of David's that he prays immediately following uh, the prophet Nathan's confrontation of David regarding David's adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of her wife, of her husband, Uriah. Um, So Psalm 51, beginning in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Before, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise." For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I have a good friend named Jacob Smith, and he once said that all of us, all of us are three bad days away from becoming a tabloid headline, and most of us are already on day two. At a time when our worst private moments, our most shameful secrets, our deepest character flaws can be easily found out and publicly exposed for the world to see, I find great comfort in the fact that King David knew exactly what that felt like, to be exposed for the worst parts of him to be exposed. This man after God's own heart brought disgrace on his God-given office. Earlier, God refers to David as a man after my own heart, a man after God's own heart. Well, this man after God's own heart brought disgrace by his actions on his God-given office as king of Israel. He sinned against God and all of God's people. He abused his God-given power for personal sexual gain. 
He took advantage of a woman under his care and then had her husband killed to cover up the fact that he got her pregnant. I mean, in the Jerusalem tabloids, David's sordid story would have been plastered all over the front page, all over the front page. His well-known affair with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah was played out in the public square. It was a scandal for the ages at that time. And to make it worse, it was permanently recorded here in the Bible so that every generation from then until now would know about it. Every generation. I mean, Google searches are nothing compared to the documented truthfulness of the Bible. David's dirty laundry, his worst moments, have been hanging in the public for more than 2,500 years. And if you think about it, apart from his defeat of Goliath, the Philistine giant, David's sexual affair and murderous cover-up are what he is remembered for the most. I mean, think about it. Can you imagine if social media existed during his time? The king of Israel, the king of the most powerful nation on the earth at that time, the world of that day finds out that he had a sexual relationship, an adulterous relationship with a woman that he was lusting after, and he summoned her, and using his power to seduce her, he did so, and he got her pregnant, uh, and then realizing that he was in a jam, had her husband murdered so that he could then marry Bathsheba and cover up his sin. I mean, can you imagine if social media existed during his time? You imagine if Twitter existed during his time. I mean, David would have definitely been public enemy number one of the Me Too movement. Absolutely. I mean, I'm sure that he was tempted to disappear. I'm sure that he was tempted to shut his mouth forever, to go into seclusion and never come out so that he could avoid the public's angry stares and wagging fingers. I mean, it is a lot easier... And it's a lot less painful to go into hiding when something terrible about you has been publicly revealed. And yet, this notorious adulterer and murderer and abuser was lifted up by God to write his most famous hymn, his most famous prayer, Psalm 51, in the aftermath of his most infamous fall. And we can all be super glad that God raised him up to write this. As I mentioned earlier, um, this psalm has helped me in incalculable ways. I have found myself praying through this psalm uh, for years and years and years as a way of uh, coming clean before God, confessing my own sin, um, using David's prayer and making it my prayer, using David's confession and making it my confession. It's a, it's a hymn of a prayer, uh, a hymn, a confessional prayer of brutal honesty and transparency. Um, this hymn has helped me, this prayer has helped me on so many different occasions, and it would have never been written had David not crashed and burned, had he not fallen and failed. In fact, if David had not suffered through this dark night of the soul, we would not have the shining light of his prayer for mercy. 
I read it, I read through it a few minutes ago. In this psalm, Psalm 51, David breaks down, completely breaks down. He loses his composure as he composes his song of confession. He, he comes clean, he admits his sin, he admits his need for forgiveness, he appeals to God's mercy, he begs for God's unfailing love and compassionate cleansing in the wake of his greatest failure. He's being honest with himself. He's being honest before God. He's coming clean. He he knows that God alone can remove his guilt and set him straight and renew him and restore him. He knows that while others may never forgive him, he'll be okay as long as God forgives him. Well, he prays for all of these things. Uh, Blot out my transgressions. Uh, Renew a right spirit within me. Um, He prays these things, his confessional prayer. He's coming clean before God and he's asking God for all of these things. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Blot out my transgressions according to your abundant mercy. Wash me thoroughly from my sins and cleanse me from my iniquities. I mean, he's, he's coming clean. He's admitting that he is a sinner in need of a rescuing God. He's admitting that he is breaking down, that he is broken down and needs God's rescuing grace. He owns his sin. He's not passing the blame on Bathsheba. He's not passing the blame on anybody outside of him. He owns it. He recognizes that he himself is guilty. I was talking to... Uh, one of my sons not long ago, and we were talking about um, how easy it is, specifically in our culture today, for people to blame everyone but themselves for the decisions that they make. And I said, you know, back in the Garden of Eden, they tried that too. Uh, When Adam and Eve sinned and gave in the temptation, uh, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and God said, I'm having none of this. All of you are responsible for the decision that you made, regardless of what anyone else did or did not do. And so each person got their own punishment for what they themselves did. David gives us a great example here of someone who is not shifting blame or pointing the finger, but is owning, owning what he has done. Um, He's not blaming Bathsheba for being seductive or... Uh, for being visible. Um, He's not blaming Bathsheba's beauty. He's not blaming God. He's not blaming anybody but himself. He owns it. He's blaming himself. Um, And he knows that while others may never forgive him, he knows he'll be okay if God forgives him, if God cleanses him, if God restores him. God forgives him. Well, having pleaded to God for these things, for forgiveness, for mercy, for God's unfailing love and compassionate cleansing as he prays for God to remove his guilt, to set him straight, to renew him and all of these things, David makes God a promise. And these are probably my three favorite verses in the whole psalm. Beginning in verse 13, he prays and asks God for all these things. Forgive me, restore me, be merciful to me, all of these things. Hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me, cast me not away from your presence, restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then, having prayed for all these things, beginning in verse 13, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. 
and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and then my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. I love that. Because what it shows is that he promises God that he, David, will steward his own failures in service to God and others. He promises God that he will tell the world about the seriousness of sin and the gloriousness of grace. He promises God that he will spend the rest of his days singing of God's righteousness, singing about the mercy of God telling other people about the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the love of God, the seriousness of sin and the gloriousness of grace. This forgiven sinner becomes the instructor of sin and forgiveness. This absolved adulterer becomes the premier preacher of our unfaithfulness and God's fidelity. This pardoned life taker, this pardoned murderer becomes the lead singer of a song about God who gives new life to those who only deserve death. I mean, David promises God, I won't shut up. Do these things. Cleanse me, restore me, forgive me, be merciful to me. Um, And as a result, if you do those things for me, God, I will not shut up about your mercy. I will not shut up about your grace. I will not shut up about my sin and your salvation. David won't shut up. David can't shut up. And God doesn't want him to. His pardon becomes his platform. And liberation becomes his lyric God broke him for this very reason. This man after God's own heart is now singing about the heart of God from a place of deep experience that he could not have known apart from failure. David's song and story are proof That God's intention for those who crash and burn and fail is not for them to stay quiet, is not for them to crawl in a hole and never show their face again. That God's intention for those who have really blown it is not that they'll go away and never open their mouth again. Rather, God intends to pick them up and wash them off and open their mouths wide so that they will speak more loudly than ever of his amazing grace and his unconditional love. Psalm 51 is biblical proof that however one wants to interpret the qualification passages in Timothy and Titus, those passages are not meant to silence the voices of all who have bottomed out and failed. So in Timothy and Titus, the Apostle Paul Uh, in both his letter to Timothy and his letter to Titus, um, the Apostle Paul gives qualifications for people who will serve as leaders inside the church. And he doesn't give an exhaustive list, but he gives a sample list of things that we should be looking for in, in people's characters when we ask them to be a leader in the church. And some people have assumed that if anybody has violated any of those qualifications at any point in time in their life that they are banned for life from ever serving in any leadership capacity inside the church. Um, But Psalm 51 is proof that however one wants to interpret those passages in Timothy and Titus, 
those passages are not meant to silence the voices of all who have bottomed out. I mean, when we use those passages as weapons to shut the mouths of those who have sinned greatly, we rob the church of the very voices that God intends to use to set people free. I mean, today, David would have been deemed forever disqualified and unfit to lead based on what he was guilty of, much less pen 73 psalms that God himself published. So if anything, Psalm 51 proves that there's no one more qualified to speak of the significance of sin and the gladness of grace than the one who has tasted the significance of sin and the gladness of grace. Um, recovery institutions, for instance, recovery places, organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, recovery institutions have figured out that the best people to reach those who have bottomed out are those who have bottomed out themselves. I think the church could learn a lot from that because we, for whatever reason, we tend to think that the people who have the most to offer are people who have concealed the worst parts about themselves or the people who seemingly have it all together, that those are the people we can learn from, those are the people that we should learn from. And while we can learn from God through anybody, it's specifically the people who have struggled through something particular that can help people who are struggling with that particular thing in the same way most powerfully. Um, I mean, who better to speak of God's redeeming grace than prodigals who once lived in the pigsty? People who have been there, people who have done that. People who don't just warn about sin and glory over grace from a distance or theoretically, but who do it because they know what it smells like and what it feels like to crash and burn and bottom out and deal with guilt and shame and regret and all of those things. Um, I'm not sure where we ever got the idea that our goodness and strength is what qualifies us to have a powerful impact on people. I mean, I don't know where we get that idea. It's very prevalent inside the church that uh, if, you're, if you're good and you're strong, that is what qualifies you to have the most powerful impact on people. I don't know where that came from, but the truth is that none of us are good and none of us are strong. And our impact on people becomes powerful when we acknowledge our badness, live out of our weakness, and point to God's goodness. That's when um, our impact on people becomes powerful. You see, if you're, if you're afraid to let anyone see your weakness, it means you've built your identity on appearing to be strong. I've had to wrestle with that. It's hard for us to show our shadow sides to people. It's instinctive, it's natural for us to conceal the worst parts of ourselves, to do everything we can to appear strong and to cover up our weaknesses, thinking that that's what will serve people best, that that's what will serve me best. Um, but if you're afraid to let anyone see your weakness, what that tells me, what that tells you is that You've built your identity on appearing to be strong. Or put it this way, if you're afraid to let anyone see your badness, it means you've built your identity on appearing to be good. But the more honest you are about your failures, the bigger your effect on people will be. 
Opening up about your struggles helps people so much more than talking about your strengths. I mean, people may be temporarily inspired when you share your successes with them, but they connect with you and they feel less alone when you share your failures with them. It is our failures, not our successes, where God's grace shines the brightest through us into the lives of other people. I find that to be incredibly comforting. Not only the fact that I'm free from the pressure of having to conceal the worst parts of me and having to always put my best foot forward. That's exhausting. And we live our lives, most of us live our lives like that all the time. Uh, We don't want people to see us at our worst. We only want people to see us at our best. And so we develop this pattern, this, this habit of making sure that everyone around us thinks we're strong and good all the time. And at the end of the day, not only is it exhausting, but it doesn't really help anybody. Um, it is our failures, not our successes, where God's Grace shines the brightest through us into the lives of other people. It is in our weakness, as a matter of fact, that we discover God's strength. That's what Paul tells us in Corinthians, that it's, it's when we are weak that God showcases his strength. God flexes his muscles in and through our weaknesses. It is in our guilt that we discover God's grace. It's in our failures that we discover God's faithfulness. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Well, we would never know just how faithful God is if we were never faithless. It's when we are faithless and he demonstrates his faithfulness that our faith in him grows. Isn't it good news that the gospel has its own flawless character to it and therefore does not demand your flawless character to be effective? I mean, that's it's good news to me. Hoping that's good news to you. I, I long for a day when the church becomes um, committed to not just telling us the truth about God, but telling the truth about ourselves. I mean, there's, there's no better way, for instance, that I have figured out to tell you and to convince you of God's goodness um, except to show you my badness and show you that in, in the face of my badness, God continues to be good to me. And so it's one thing to stand up and confess that you're a sinner. It's another thing to actually confess your sins like David does here. To confess his sins and in doing so, showing God's flawless character, his willingness to forgive, his faithfulness even in the face of our faithlessness. See, every person I have ever known who has crashed and burned and come to terms with their own powerlessness has taught me something about God's love and forgiveness that I didn't know before. Um, When someone appears to be strong and to have it all together and um, they appear to just have a robust faith that they never struggle, they never really waver, um, that they're just on point all the time, um, that's temporarily impressive to me, but that doesn't tell me anything really impressive about God. It's when somebody I know or me, myself, or somebody I know or somebody that we see crashes and burns and falls on their face um, and God never abandons that person, that tells me something about God. 
Um, so I, I mean, have you, you have, I'm sure, like me, have you, like David, like me, blown it? I mean, do you think that your sin has forever shut you up, that you don't, you don't have the right to speak about God, to talk about God's love and God's grace and God's mercy and God's faithfulness, that you're, you're too bad of a person to lead other people to God? That you've disqualified yourself because of something you've done or something you failed to do? Or the, are the voices inside you telling you that you're not qualified to speak or share or shout the good news whenever and wherever you can? Sometimes those accusing voices are inside and sometimes those accusing voices are outside and oftentimes those accusing voices are outside and inside. Who are you to talk about God? Look at your life. Who are you to tell me about the grace and forgiveness of God? Look at you. I mean, you're a train wreck. You're a mess. You're not qualified to talk about God, to tell me about God. Well, if that's, if that's the way you feel or if that's the way you've been meant to feel, then I have good news for you. You are forgiven. You are clean and righteous in the eyes of God because of Jesus and that God has determined that you are the mouthpiece of God to a broken world. You, no matter who you are. Those who stand at the foot of the cross, pure and blameless in Jesus, have no mute button. Your failures have qualified you to speak about your sin and God's grace more than any of your successes, more than all of your successes put together. Your weaknesses have qualified you to share about the strength of God more so than any of your own strengths. The bad parts of you, the parts of you that you feel the most guilty about, that you feel the most shame for, those are the things when you admit them, when you acknowledge them, those are the things that qualify you more than anything to speak about the outrageous mercy of God, the amazing grace of God, the unconditional love of God. So as one of my hymns, one of my favorite hymns says, through all the tumult and the strife, I hear its music ringing. It sounds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing. Let's pray together.